Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional song making at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit CincinnatiSongInitiative.org slash audit. Hey everyone, I'm Laura Lavoie and this is Song Cycle. The official podcast of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we talk everything song, its history, its creation, its performance, and its ability to keep us connected through stories. In this episode, I get to talk with world-renowned scholar Dr. Susan Ewens. In addition to having two absolutely adorable cats, Dr. Ewens is one of the world's first and foremost scholars in 19th century German leader, particularly the works of Schubert and Wolf. Not only was this conversation generally just life-giving, inspirational, and informative for me, I almost felt like I should make a tuition payment considering I got a first-hand, personalized lecture from the doctor herself on the subject that she loves the most. Welcome everyone to a brand new episode of Song Cycle. Today, I am sitting with the most amazing Susan Ewens, and she is going to be talking to us a bit about her career and her research and possibly her cats. So (laughs) Susan, thank you so much for being here. It's such a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is very kind of you. <laughs> I think you're doing me the kindness. So, Susan, can you tell the good folks who are going to be listening to this episode just a little bit about who you are, what you do, how you got into it, and your connection with CSI? Sure. I, I didn't intend or start out to be a scholar of art song because I'm older than God. I go back to the days when musicology was all about editing and studying the medieval and Renaissance archives. So I dutifully wrote a dissertation on two of the dullest and most boring 16th century chanson composers you can imagine. Uh, I think they had a requirement that dissertations had to be at least 200 pages. Mine was 201. So as soon as the thing was finished, I dropped it on its pointy little head and went back to an earlier love, which was French song. I was fascinated with the French language, and I loved Debussy and Forêt and Ravel, and just all the great late 19th century melodie composers. And after all, what's not to love, especially if you're as into poetry as I am? Verlaine, Mahomet, great music, who wouldn't be happy? But I heard a live performance of Winterreiser in my early 30s. And that experience just cracked me open like an egg. It spoke so deeply to my own sense of 
of alienation and being unloved and of no purpose in the world. So I had to find out what in that music had rewritten my DNA. And when I began reading what little there was written about it, I didn't agree with any of it. So that's what started me researching it and investigating it from my own point of view. And since then, I've, I've never gone back. I've been immersed in 19th century leader ever since. So you haven't revisited your dissertation or any of that Renaissance music ever again? <laughs> oh, I, I think I lost my copy of the dissertation <laughs> sometime back in the late 70s. And if somebody gave me a copy now, I'd ugh, consign <laughs> it to the circular bin. <laughs> well, that is, so I have a quick question for you just about, well, actually, you know what? I'm going to put a pin in that and I'm going to come back to it later because I, <laughs> I have a I have an important question that I want to ask you, but I think it'll fit really well into what I want to discuss later. So, Susan, I want to start off and I start off all my episodes this way, asking you, what is art song? And okay. subsequently, why is it important and or relevant today, um, especially as at least for me, I feel like art song really started with the German lead for me, just knowing kind of my ex, I know, you know, art songs, songs and things like that existed before, you know, the 1800s. I know that. But for me, that's kind of when my, that's where my journey started when I started getting into me art too. song. So that's kind of the, the real starting point for me. So within that context, can you talk to us about what is art song and its importance? Sure. For me, art song is the serious, even if the song is comic, setting of words in which the keyboard accompaniment and the vocal part convey to us, the listeners, a composer's understanding, his interpretation, his love, his quarrel even with a poetic text. What I find so fascinating about this genre is that you have two artworks preserved in amber in the same song because poets have their own agendas that have nothing to do with music. They're all about imagery and theme and form and rhyme and stanza, things that are not music. While composers have their own purely musical concerns, their idiosyncratic harmonic language, how they treat tonality, how they feel about rhythm and texture and form, and even things like chord voicing. I always think different composers have unique approaches to how they distribute the tones in a chord. And yet the two come together in song and it is the sheer complexity of their intertwining that I just find endlessly fascinating. And in my view, art song is even more necessary now than it was in the 19th century because Everything subtle, everything nuanced, everything refined is threatened in this contemporary world. And what art song does 
is it makes us pay attention because every word, every compositional decision has meaning. And the performers need to figure out what they think that meaning is and how best to tell us about it. The, the fact that song speaks to, at least 19th century song, speaks to subjective inner worlds. It's all about inner emotion, inner experience. And for anybody in this world trying to figure out who am I, what really matters to me, what do I think and feel? Art song is one of the most amazing teachers of how to do that, that I know of. And every song is different. You can never get bored studying song. The way I got bored with those polyphonic chansons on an assembly line. <laughs> You're absolutely right. One of the things that you said that really, dare I say, struck a chord with me was that you said that art song makes us pay attention. And one of the things that I noticed about myself, and maybe you can give some explanation as to why, um, but one of the things I noticed about myself coming into the pandemic is I was particularly drawn to art song in my practice and just in my musical wanderings and just music that I felt sat with me. And I think it's because during this last, um, I guess we're coming on, we're coming into year three now, year three of the pandemic. It's, it's really helped me pay attention to, you know, myself as I have been for the past, you know, two years, spending a lot more time with myself, but also to just how, like you were saying, those, those musical stylings and those poetic stylings are preserved, but also very alive. And that's so, it's very validating and also very interesting to hear you say that. Um, it's so much about that inner subjective experience that all of us are dealing with right now, which makes art song so relevant to everything that we're dealing with in this time. I agree. I agree. Art song, I think, is all about responses. Poetry responds, music responds to the poetry. Poetry is heightened by the music. And we respond to that colloquy between words and music in our own ways. Absolutely. And that's, that's something that I'm sure you have had to deal with with your non-musical friends and colleagues, and I've had to deal with with my non-musical friends and colleagues, is explaining why that fusion of music and poetry is so important to us and how it's different from opera, how it's right. very different from opera. But it's also, in some ways, at least for me, more meaningful. Me too. Now, mind you, I adore opera. Of course, me too. I'm the world's biggest Verdi fan. I'm writing a program note for the Met now on Verdi's Don Carlos. And I am so excited about this assignment because I love that opera. So I used to teach courses on the Shakespeare operas of Verdi, and I taught a whole course on Wagner's Parsifal and all sorts of other opera seminars too. But it's really art song that's, that speaks to me because the real estate, the, the amount of territory it takes up may be small, but it goes so deep. And so and far. I, I love that combination. And it reminds me that lyric poetry is 
minimal language for maximal meaning. And that's the challenge in really good poetry that I think the great composers take up when they write songs. Because of course, that's another thing to distinguish, say, 18th century uh, moralizing leader. There were all sorts of strophic songs about what's expected of a good husband and how to raise children mm -hmm. and uh, what attitude to have to duty and to work. But it's when composers, I think, start setting the likes of Goethe and Schiller and it, even Matisson and people like that, that the kind of leader I love really comes into its own. Absolutely. That actually leads beautifully into my next set of questions that I wanted to talk to you about. So obviously a lot of your specialization is in 19th century German leader, particularly Schubert and Wolf. Um, and so what I I'm trying for for the folks who are listening to this who think, oh, it's all German to me. It all sounds the same. Um, can you explain to us just sort of a general overview of the difference between sort of that romantic 18 or uh, 19th century German leader as opposed to, we'll say, early 20th century? You know, once we start getting into the Viennese schools, second Viennese school, all of that. Can you just explain a little bit about um, the differences between those? Perhaps um, we don't have to get necessarily into the theory, but just sort of the overall sort of aesthetic and emotional um, emphasis behind those, um, for me, sort of two distinct uh, German periods of art song. Sure. Um well, for one thing, all of 19th century German song isn't romantic. I mean, it, it's romantic in its approach to tonality and harmony. The musical means are all romantic, but the poets come in every shade of the rainbow. Uh, Goethe actually propagandized against romanticism. Uh, the characters of Mignon and the Harper, in a certain sense, are blows against romantic fascination with incest and madness. Uh, the Sorrows of Young Werther is a, an attack on romantic attitudinizing that was so marvelous that it inspired people to do precisely that kind of romantic breast beating and seeking to be a genius. Then you have people like Eichendorf who believed that poetry is made up of hieroglyphs coded images and words. I mean, there's, there's, there's so many different, there's revolutionary fist shaking uh, down with tyranny and monarchs poetry. It, it really comes in an amazing variety. But what I think happens in the early 20th century is that the musical language changes. You have Berg, going from fabulous late romanticism with echoes even of Wolf. He has a, in the Sieben Frühlieder, there really are songs that recall Wolf to me. But when you get into atonal music and dodecaphonic 12-tone music, I think that altered musical language demanded a different poetry and much more contemporary verse. So uh, music always responds 
to changes in literature and vice versa. So I, I think that's one way to explain it. That's great. Like I said, some people, you know, if we have some budding musician, 14-year-old musician who stumbles across my podcast and says, well, I know about Schubert, but who is this Schoenberg you talk about? You know, just to give an idea of what specific part of the trajectory of German art song output we're talking about, particularly here. Um, and I think that that was great just to give sort of a general overview of what we're looking at here. So I know you talked about this a little bit earlier um, and what inspired you to do this research, um, but what particularly drew you to um, the works of Schubert and Wolf? You're drop dead gorgeous. <laughs> I always respond to sheer beauty that isn't necessarily skin deep. You know, there are a lot of people who say, Wolf isn't enjoyable to listen to because he's too Wagnerian and too complicated, which I think is poppycock. He wrote some of the most gorgeous, unbelievably stir my knees with a spoon melodies in the entire repertory. There's a song entitled Verschwiegene Liebe silent love. Well, if you don't fall in love with that melody, you have a tin ear, I'm sorry. And there are lots of other examples from Wolf too. And when he's complex, it's because the persona in the poem is grappling with experiences that are not cozy, not simple, not every day, his mignon is just magnificent, but it's not the sort of thing you leave the theater whistling. Unless you're me. <laughs> or, or me. <laughs> to be fair, though, those were my... It was my first experience with Wolf. I found that I heard someone sing those songs in a recital and kind of like you said with Vinterreise, they cracked me open oh. and I just, I wept. I, I thought they were the most it. beautiful things I'd ever heard. Ma the, the way Wolf sets the words, macht mich auf ewig wieder jung, make me eternally young again. It's indescribable. It's so exquisite. I have goosebumps just thinking about it. <laughs> I know. So, but in, in the sorry. case of Schubert, it was really a matter of encountering Winterreise at a particular moment in my life when it was guaranteed to make the greatest impression. And after that, I just had to delve into all the rest of Schubert. That takes a while. That it and does. Since there isn't a dud in the lot, you know, you just keep going from one to the other, to the next, to the next. I find that as I grow older, there are songs that speak to me more than they did when I was younger. And that's interesting too, because then songs become part of your life's journey. I'm writing that down because I've noticed that as a singer, that there are some songs that I have performed countless times over the past 15 or so years that I've been doing this. And even as a relatively young person, I go back to songs that I learned when I was in my teenage years that speak very differently to me now as I'll call myself a kind of grown up. I'm not sure if I'm quite there yet, but <laughs> but it's funny how those things really do 
take on different shapes, even though it's it's like greeting an old friend where you where you still um, it's kind of like you picked up picked up like nothing happened or time you know years and years haven't passed, but there's just something a little more comfortable about it or maybe new and exciting. It's right. I I completely understand. There are songs that I've always loved, but some of them. I've recognized that maybe some future day when I'm old and wise, I'll finally understand what Schubert or Wolf or Fanny Hensel or Clara Schumann or Brahms, why they made it that way. Up until a certain point, I think, my response has always been, how did he or she do that? How do you conceptualize this incredible piece of music? And in some instances, at least, when I'm older, the proverbial light bulb goes off. And I think I can get what, it, what it's all about. You'll have to share that secret with us someday. <laughs> I don't begin to understand it. So, <laughs> well, when you do, give me a call. All we right. can talk. <laughs> You're first on the list. <laughs> so, as we're talking about this repertoire, I have a handful of questions that I want to ask you um, related specifically to um, this particular period. So, what are or what have you found? Um, either in your own sort of hands-on experience or just by watching other performers, what do you find are some common misconceptions or common assumptions that are made about performing works by Schubert and Wolf? I don't run into this attitude so much anymore. But when I was younger and teaching and coaching, I would get the occasional opera-obsessed youngin which is fine, I love opera, but either they or their voice teacher would have told them not to fool with Schubert because it's too simple. You know, it's not opera arias. And for a composer whose opus one was Alkernish, for God's sake, that wrist-breaking exercise in extremism there's something a little ironic in that attitude. So I would always sit them down and say that Schubert was on a mission to, in his words, modernize the song composition of our day. And he did that by doing a whole slew of things. For one thing, he made the pianist an equal partner in the interpretation of the words. The keyboard player was not just to follow along hat in hand, plunking out chords. And another thing that he did that was, I think even more meaningful is that he challenges the Texas-sized genres, the symphony, the opera, the string quartet by making song challenging, difficult, something to grapple with the way performers have to grapple with the gargantuan genres. Uh, and if you look at some of his song manuscripts, some of them look like World War III was fought on them. He expended a lot of effort on getting these songs just right. And for the students I used to have like that, I always point to songs like Des Fischer's Liebesglück, The Fisherman's Luck in Love, which has two pages of music, four repeated stanzas, and eight pianissimo high A's in close proximity. Now, there are probably plenty of arias 
where you belt out eight high A's fortissimo. But to have it come at the end of a phrase, it has to be soft. You can't scream. You know, you've got to have chops to do that. But, you know, I don't know whether it's because some of my past students now tell present students, don't dare say anything against Schubert, she'll explode. (laughs) (laughs) I don't run into that anymore. And happily, people are now starting to explore beyond Gretchenumspinnerata, Diefachella. I adore those songs. I think they're wonderful, but there are more than five Schubert songs. There are. And some of the ones that aren't much sung are to die for. They're so good. Yeah, I talked about the misconceptions of approaching Wolf as someone difficult that audiences aren't going to like, which doesn't match with any experience I've ever had of a Wolf leader opent. A Wolf song recital, people love these songs. In my own personal experience, I don't think it's the audience that's the problem. I think it's the performers. <laughs> because as as a professed Wolf lover here, his music is not easy. It is technically demanding. It's musically demanding. It's emotionally demanding. It's just everything about his writing is so specific and so nuanced that yes. it can be very taxing and both like physically, emotionally, vocally to bring all of that out perfectly all the time. Right? You can't slam through it. It's you just cannot. not allowed. And I think, you know, there is such a thing as a lazy singer. Uh, not very many of them, I'm happy to say, but lazy singers hate Wolf because he requires that you put in effort to wrap your mind around it, which is probably going to expand your mind exponentially once you realize what he's about. You're absolutely right. And I think that's one of the reasons why I was initially drawn to him. You can ask any of my teachers, any of my coaches, anyone who knows me. I always take either the path less traveled or the more difficult path. And I knew his music was complex or complicated and emotionally just um, very, um, you have to put a lot, put a lot of effort, like you said, into it. He was a very intense creature. Yes. (laughs) Ran up the stairs instead of walking. He was, when things were going well for him compositionally, he was just vociferous in his ecstasy about having his muse be cooperative. You know, one of the last letters that he wrote was about the three Michelangelo songs, which are near and dear to my heart. And the middle one, alles endet was entsteht. Everything that is created ends. Is uh, jaw-dropping, eye-popping. It's the, the way in which it's put together makes your spine tingle. So he wrote to one of his best friends. And he said, the second song I've worked on is I think the best thing I've ever written thus far. If you don't fall down when you hear it, or or words to that effect, Mm. sort of you're not gonna believe how great this is. And he was right. Well, at least he had a sense of his own Abilities. (laughs) He did. And he knew when it wasn't worth the effort. 
to try and write because inspiration wasn't there. He went through years like that. It's, it's just do. tragic to read. But when his muse showed up, she showed up in all capital letters and neon lights. And the results are just uh, unique. And I, I think the first Wolf song that I ever heard was rather unusual. Uh, dear friends of mine in undergraduate school performed Vaunung at the end of the Marika songs. And in that song, a hungover poet slash composer wakes up and in his alcoholic grandiosity summons his muse for a song. Well, she's not having any of this being ordered around like a lackey. So she shows up and dictates drivel to him. And in wolf setting, the schnurda baffle, the drivel, it's a completely comical simplification of the introduction to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. So you think you're Beethoven, do you? Ha! It's just hilarious. And I love I that. I just thought I have to find other songs by this guy that he's this is astonishing that's so funny i'm not actually familiar with that song but i'm gonna have to go listen to it you're now. gonna have to go listen to that's it. amazing susan i wanted to follow up on all of this as you are expounding your wisdom and knowledge upon me this lovely <laughs> evening i want to pivot just a little bit and ask you about if you had any idea when you decided to um, drop your polyphonic renaissance chanson, <laughs> when you decided to give up that career for yourself and pursue your research of 19th century art song, uh, did, you, did you know when you decided to start pursuing these passions that um, this was going to turn, you would have such a great impact on People like me who study your writings and who like people go to now and they're like, you're you are the person to talk to about about this, this music, this, this. Did you know that or did you have any oh, idea God, that no. you would have that kind of impact? No, I had no self-confidence, whatever. But what I had was love of the music when I'm advising students in musicology, I always tell them, pick for your topic something you really, really love, because that's the reward. You're never going to get rich. But if you can spend a life rolling around in the music that makes you happiest, that's just nirvana. And what happened to me is that I love poetry. And I think art song begins with poetry. It begins with the musician's response to words. So what I soon figured out with Winterkreise is that all German songs have what I call a backstory. There is history and backdrop, say, in the figure of the wanderer and how Wilhelm Müller shapes it. There's backstory to every theme, trope, idea, concept, and image in verse. And the composers I love, I think, are smarter then people often make them out to be. And Schubert's literary acuity was off the charts. He could delve into great poetry to the bottom of its lake. He could 
find riches in poems that were inept as verse. Uh, you know, the craft of poetry maybe wasn't hitting on all cylinders, but there was a concept, an idea, an image that he could turn into his music. And for me, knowing the backstory of a song inevitably has an effect on performance. If only because the more a song means to you, the more you have to convey. You know, it's not going to, that kind of knowledge isn't going to burnish the high notes or inflect the proper, well, it can make you inflect the rhythm properly, but you will pay greater attention to the song's depths and the audience will get more. And I firmly believe that. You're absolutely you know, right. People, I know there are people who think that all this musicological trawling around is of no use for performance, but I really disagree with that. For what it's worth, I do too. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so I also want to ask you, I am. I think it's a safe assumption that as you started in on this research and started researching to do your research and reading other people who had um, started foraging that path before you, I think it's a fairly safe assumption that you were probably one of the only women who was pursuing this type of work. <laughs> and so I just oh, want to... Yeah. That's something that really fascinates me, and I have been really lucky in this podcast to talk to a lot of women who have foraged paths for themselves, and that's something that's really important to me, and I think it's important for people to know about. So can you talk a little bit about that experience as, um, as a woman, just moving through sort of uncharted territory for yourself, and um, maybe some of the, um, we'll say, challenges and rewards? <laughs> opportunities that presented themselves along the journey. <laughs> well, I have a stubborn streak, so I've never really followed musicological fashion. And musicology goes through fads and fashions like every other field. And my approach to leader through the text is something that a lot of people thought was a soft option, you know, not really serious because I wasn't doing Shankarian analysis or digging up 15th century archives or things like that. So I've had to put up with a certain amount of Oh, what you do is musicology light. And also my leader tribe, the people who work on leader with me, all of my younger cohorts and brothers and sisters in song are fabulous. But the misogynistic politics of academe back in the old days really gave me fits. I was denied tenure at my first job. They invited me back later and introduced me as, quote, the one we stupidly let get away. Uh, and then I taught for many years at a Catholic university where I, I was everything they disapproved of. <laughs> I'm a lefty liberal feminist. I'm not a believer. I'm certainly not Catholic. So they could make their disapproval manifest in many ways. But I also had department chairs who were wonderful, 
who just treated me marvelously and who are dear friends for life. So yeah, misogyny in academe is at least abating these days. It's not as bad. Despite all the academic politics and the sort of jealousy and backbiting that I think everybody encounters. I don't know anybody who skates through life avoiding some of that. And certainly all the women scholars that I'm so fond of that I adore uh, have had struggles very comparable to mine. And, you know, I decided at one point that what mattered was in order, my students teaching and my own work. And I can walk into this study and sit down to work on the latest project and the world melts away. It's just an instant panacea for all things bad. That's so lovely to hear. Well, that's real. I'm really glad that you that you shared that with with me. I feel like the more I speak with other women who are pioneers in various areas of our field, um, have similar experiences, and I think it's important for us to just chat about it. Just so other people know that when they're experiencing X, Y, or Z misogyny, you know, it's... um... You have to have a network of both male and female friends that you can go to on whose shoulders you can cry. You really do. That's that and the work are what gets you through the bad patches. But there are also good patches too. I mean, I before COVID, I got to travel and meet all sorts of people who love song as much as I do. I got to lecture all over the place. Uh, My students were just wonderful. The administration may be a crock, but the students were astonishing. Administrations are generally hit or miss. (laughs) Aren't they, though? (laughs) Um, So I have a couple more questions for you as we're starting to kind of, we're in the process of, what is it, when they say you're starting your initial descent as you're in a plane, you know, your initial descent into whatever land. (laughs) Um, Do you have a favorite Schubert and or Wolf song? I know this is a really hard question, but if you were to pick just, it's your desert island song. If you had no others, what would it be? Der Winterabend. And that's, that's due not just to the exquisite beauty of that late song. It's 1827. It's on a text by Leitner, a poet I love. And it's this long, leisurely, unfurling song. And by the end of it, you realize that the singer is a on his way to easeful death, to quote Keats. It's a depiction of the gentlest of good deaths and the best of long lives and the gentlest of good deaths. Now, there used to be a singer on my faculty who drove me crazy because everything was about theatricality. So when I was burbling in my usual enthusiastic fashion about this song, she said, too long, too much the same, too undramatic. 
I just, I know a few songs that are more profound than that one. Now, that may be my desert island song, but I always have as a favorite Schubert song, whatever I'm working on at the moment, because I have to fall in love with whatever song has a backstory I'm delving into now. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it's Bertha's Lied in der Nacht. Bertha's song in the night. Every time I bring it up, no one's heard of it. I have heard of it. I haven't oh. heard it, but I've Are heard you? of it. Okay. Now I haven't actually hear heard it. the song, though. The poem was originally meant for a drama that featured incest, a ghostly doppelganger, robbers, a castle, uh, what else? A curse. I mean, all the good stuff. (laughs) All the good stuff. And even though that poem didn't go into the play, it was published in a journal under that title. Now, Schubert, I'm convinced, knew the drama that it was meant for. And he incorporates into this unbelievable music his knowledge of the incest, of doubling at every level. It's just conceptually one of the most futuristic, adventuresome things he ever wrote. So I'm completely in love with that one now, and I'm shoving it off on everybody I know. Roger Vignoles hadn't heard of it, and now he's just over the moon about it. So, so yeah. And uh, another favorite is Das Lied im Grünen, the song in the green meadow. It's another late song. And it's all about making use of our green season, our youthful years when we're creative and in love with art before a chill falls on us and on life. Grünt eins uns das Leben nicht when life no longer greens for us, we will remember those days and they will make us joyful. So it's a wonderful song. So I have some listening to do. You do. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm so excited. These sound <laughs> fabulous. I must say, I am well familiar with the... Um, like you said, the the typical five Schubert songs, and I've taken a deeper dive myself into some some other ones, but there are several hundreds that I haven't explored yet. So you know, if you count all the revisions of songs, because he was forever revising, rewriting, um, there's somewhere between somewhere around six fifty to six eighty, depending on how you count. Now, for me, that's not enough. I wanted more, but it's plenty to be going (laughs) on. Yeah, and as for favorite wolf songs, one of my first loves in wolf is the Marika song, Im Frühling, in spring. Oh my God, that's such an amazing song. It absolutely is. Susan, I have a couple questions for you. Well, rather, I have a question about some questions for you. Um, If you could go back in time, or if you believe in an afterlife, whatever works for you, if you had a chance to meet Schubert and Wolf, and you had the opportunity to ask them a question, what would that question be? 
It's just a question. It's not a whole conversation. <laughs> as much as we would like. That's <laughs> actually a difficult question. If I could go back to them in life when they were alive, I think I would ask each one of them, Wolf in his middle 30s and Schubert in his late 20s and early 30s, if they had any thoughts about the future of song, if they could peer around the corner and imagine what song might become in their hands. That's brilliant. I, I really do wonder. I mean, I used to have other questions, but actually I think I know or can guess the possible answer to some of them. I mean, I think Schubert really wrote the future of music in those six Heine songs. And I used to think, why isn't there more? There were plenty more songs in uh, the Buch der Lieder or Die Heimkehr for him to set to music. Why did he stop? He gave the book back to a friend who had lent it to him and said he didn't need it anymore. Now, anybody who knows Der Doppelgänger, Der Atlas, or the Stension, or not the Stension, the, uh, oh, what am I thinking of? Die Stadt. Mm. Anybody who knows those songs wants more of the same, right? But I think that the sort of wormwood and gall in Heine's worldview put him off. I think there was something about the cutting nature of the irony that maybe he didn't approve of. And, you know, romantic irony in Heine's works consists, it's, it's not snark, although Heine could do performative snark better than almost anybody. It's the discrepancy between the ideal and the real. And Heine fought that battle his whole life. So I think it just wasn't Schubert's cup of tea, no matter how much I might want him to give us more of that coruscating music. I'm going to have to sit on that response for a little while. It's really interesting to think about, you know, if so-and-so were alive, where would they see the future of, of art song and really their impact on it go? That's really interesting to think about. Do you ever think about meetings that never happened? What if Schubert had lived long enough to discover Eichendorf? Oh! What might we have had? My heart! I know! Oh, my gosh! <laughs> I don't think I don't think the world could have handled it. It would have collapsed from beauty. Ships, these ships passing in the night <laughs> phenomena are really mind bending. They are. Um, so I do have one final question for you, Susan. Um, if you were to give our dear listeners or to me one piece of advice, what would it be? It would be this, whenever you work on a song, look for greater profundity and more meaning, both in the words and the music than you might expect or suspect at first. Songs aren't simple and they richly repay looking beneath the surface and asking yourself, what does that mean? And that, and that. I do have a follow-up question to that. Because <laughs> that's that's amazing. But I do have a follow-up question. Is 
Are there certain songs, we were talking about, this kind of comes full circle, we were talking about earlier how there are some songs that as you get older, they have deeper meaning or more profound meaning. Do you find that there are some songs that people should wait until a little bit later, till they're a little more seasoned, that they should wait to perform? I sometimes think that Winterkreiser is not for people in their 20s. I was in my 30s when it smacked me upside the head. And I think you have to have lived a little, figured out that People quite often, even with the best intentions, are strangers to one another. And you have to grapple with that and know how it can bite before you can really, I think, go into a work that is such a prolonged self-analysis. So Winterkaiser is one. The Wolf Michelangelo leader are another. Let's see, what else? You don't have to give me a full catalog. It was just as listening to the bit of advice that you gave where, you know, again, going back to what you referenced earlier with people saying that Schubert can be simplistic or it's, you know, not for opera singers, it's too small. Um, you know, just that there are some things when you're looking for profundity, sometimes you you recognize that it's there, but you don't see quite its full scope until you've lived a little bit. And that's fine. That's fine. I mean, I could listen to Gretchen am Spinrader when I was in undergraduate school in Texas. And I could realize that this was, I mean, I loved it. I thought it was gorgeous, but it, I knew that it would speak to me differently when I was older and had lived a bit. And, you know, Earl King, is another one of these things that I think takes people by storm, but it's about something so huge that I think you've got to have a certain, you know, largesse of mind and spirit to take it in because it's the most graphic depiction of our atavistic fear of death. I think ever created. Imagine having that be your opus one. Start off I, with a bang. Schubert's ambitions were immense. He was so young. No. Oh, what have I been doing all my life? I know. <laughs> oh, look at the at his age when he wrote X and such a song. And I'll think back to what I was doing at that same age. And I don't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that deeply. <laughs> I feel that way when I think about Mozart. <laughs> oh, we won't even all. start on that. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. Well, Susan, that that wraps it up for me and my questions for you um as we're looking ahead are there any ways um that our audience can connect with you in the future or any exciting projects you have coming up that we can keep our eyeballs out for or uh, ears out for well i've just published a chapter in a book on clara schumann who is another love of mine uh, it's called clara schumann studies it's edited by my beloved friend, Joe Davies. And I'm writing about one of her, one of the last songs she composed before going silent, which of course is just a major tragedy. Uh, it's Geheimis Frustern 
here and dort. And again, it's one a lot of people don't know. But the backstory is fascinating. The music is beautiful. So that was my last project. And uh, as far as people contacting me, I love nothing more than talking about song with people who love it or want to learn about it or want to know more about it. So anybody can shoot me an email at S-Y-O-U-E-N-S at N-D dot E-D-U. I will make sure I include that because that's what I did. And I said, Susan, let's talk. And here we are. Thank you so much, Laura. This, this has was been a such a pleasure. pleasure. It really has been so delightful, so informative to me. I feel like I just got a very profound lecture on amazing oh. music and oh. I learned so much. This was like, and this was Tigger the best. was quiet. Tigger was quiet. Susan, Susan, you have to tell the good people the names of your cats because I didn't, I wasn't recording when, when we, um, when you told me. So the names of your cats. The two mounds of gold fur up there are Toby and Tigger. And what does Graham Johnson call Toby? <laughs> Graham Johnson calls Toby. Toby or not Toby. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you want to keep up with Song Cycle, new episodes will be out on the first Monday of the month. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to us and be sure to check out our Spotify playlists. And as always, you can find out more at CincinnatiSongInitiative.org and you can follow us on all the socials. Until next time, just keep singing, y'all. <laughs>